Would you remain standing for the reading of God's word? This morning we will be reading from the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. That's on page 809, if you'd like to follow along in the Pew Bibles. We are starting a new series looking at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount as he preaches these bold and significant words about life in the kingdom. We've been blessed to see how Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament as we went through the book of Hebrews. Now we get to look more closely at Jesus and what he says and what life in him looks like. So let's now read together chapter 5, 1 through 12 of the Gospel of Matthew. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. may be seated. The Beatitudes, those verses that we just read, are really just the opening, the beginning of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. But already they are deep and rich and full, as is all of God's word. And I admit I was tempted to treat these each individually, but that would have made a a series unto itself. But here was the thing that let me feel some relief, because all of God's word is deep and rich. All of God's word affords deeper study and more contemplation. And so I'll just say that We're going to treat these together as a whole, but I invite you to dig and chew on them more. Uh, This week in the email, we'll send out a link to a podcast that recently looked at the Beatitudes, uh, each one individually. And so that will give you opportunity for further reflection. But this morning, we're going to consider what Jesus is doing as he opens his sermon to his disciples. Let's pray that God would bless us as we dwell on his word. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that not only does Scripture speak, but we have record of Jesus, the living Word, speaking, preaching, proclaiming truth. Lord, we want to hear that truth this morning. I ask that I would help in that purpose. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. How about a beach bungalow? Or would you prefer a mansion on a hill? What about a rustic cabin in the woods? Or would you prefer a high-rise penthouse apartment? 
If you had to choose, all things being equal, money not being an option, which would you choose? It probably depends on what your definition of the good life is. Is the good life being in the heart of an urban city where you have access to all the restaurants and the culture and the shows? Or is your sense of the good life being out in nature undisturbed? Which one you would choose for yourself says something about which you think would make you happy. It says something about what you value. It says something about, in your opinion, what is the life worth living? What kind of life is worth having? What kind of life is worth living? It's more than the question that we ask when we're in the guidance counselor's office in high school. What kind of life do you want to live? So we think about where we might want to go to school, what training we want, or what kind of life we want to build for ourselves. But it's a deeper question than that. What kind of life is worth living? It's a question that each of us in some way asks each day. It's a question that has been asked since the first philosophers. What is the life of virtue? The path of wisdom, the way to a good and prosperous life. It's not just a question of aspiration. It's not just a question of what we want or what we desire. It's an experiential question. What is the good, happy life, the life worth living? What kind of life is worth living when we want, when we aspire to that urban penthouse at the top of the high rise, but we have a split foyer in the suburbs? What is the good life, the life worth living, when we want to be healthy and fit, but we struggle with a genetic disorder that brings pain and will not leave us until we take our last breath? It's not just about what we desire, it's about how we experience and understand our lives according to what we define as the good life. It's even more pressing, it's even more difficult when we're not trying to live the good life according to some definition out there, but more and more in our culture, we are told to come up with a definition for ourselves. You get to define the good life. You get to define the good life. I get to define the good life for myself. But so very often when we define the good life, we find it unfulfilling when we reach it. We live in a day and age that promotes social media and fame and the ability to influence so many people, but already there is a swath of people who have reached stardom on YouTube and TikTok who are crushed under the weight of their success. This is all that they aspired to, and suddenly it's crushing them. How much more crushing is it when we get to define what the good life is for ourselves? No one else tells it to us. We decide, and yet we still can't attain it. But what if there is a way to define the good life? What if there is a path to happiness to walk outside of ourselves? Brothers and sisters, this is what the Beatitudes, this section of Jesus' sermon, is about. It's about the good life. Uh, the word Beatitudes comes from Latin for the word for good or happy. Now, 
we are used to translations of these words as blessed. And I'm just going to address this briefly because we might say, okay, these people are experiencing blessings. And it's okay for us to use that word. There's reasons that word is stuck around. But normally, when we read the Bible, blessing is something that comes from God. It's something that God gives. But when you go to the Old Testament, there's a word for blessings from God, and then there's a word for the good life. And the word in Greek here translates not God's blessing, but the experience of the good life. It's the word that opens up Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. So we can use the word blessed because the best translation is probably happy, but happy in our sense of what happy means just isn't deep enough, it isn't broad enough to capture. Now, Jesus is inviting his hearers into the way of being in the world that will result in their true and full flourishing now and in the age to come. Jesus has been proclaiming the gospel. He started his ministry. He says the kingdom is at hand. He's calling people to repent and believe. He's showing signs of the kingdom with miracles and healings. And now as he calls his disciples to teach them, he says, you've heard what I'm preaching. You've seen that the kingdom is at hand. Now I want to give you a taste. I want to give you a picture of what flourishing under the headship of the king looks like. This morning, we're going to look at the good life, the happy life. We're going to look at it defined by the king. We're going to look at it exemplified by the king. And we're going to see how the good life, how happiness comes through the provision of the king. First, we see that the one who experiences happiness and flourishing does so according to the definition of the king. We see this in the first few verses. Verse 1 tells us, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. So part of what's happening there is that there are a lot of people, so Jesus goes up on the mountain, so he has some space where he can be heard by a group of people. But it's more than being heard because chiefly he's addressing his disciples. The crowds will later draw close to hear him as well, but he doesn't need a huge amphitheater to talk to his group of disciples. There's something more than just setting the geographical scene. See, when mountains show up in the Old Testament, the presence of the divine shows up. Moses goes up Mount Sinai, to which God has come down, in order that he might receive God's revelation. Mountains evoke the presence and the revelation of God. God has something to say. It also evokes on the mountain, as he begins to preach, something that God has promised. In Isaiah 61, which Jesus uses to describe his ministry in Luke 4, he says, today in your hearing this has been fulfilled. It says there a promise of in the day of the Lord there will be comfort for the morning. There will be praise instead of a faint spirit. 
Dishonor will be replaced with glory. There will be the provision of justice. And so as Jesus sits on the mountain to begin to open his mouth to speak with authority, they not only hear someone who wants to be heard, they are preparing themselves to hear what God has to say. And what he chooses to say about the comfort of the morning about the provision of justice, about care for the faint in spirit, is a sign that the promised deliverer, the promised king, has come. As Jesus opens his mouth on the mountain, he says, the king is speaking. The king is defining the good life. And then how does his description compare? When we read these Verses, particularly verses 3 through 11, as each of these opens up with the word that we translate blessed or happy or flourishing. What will be most striking to us is they don't line up with what the world says. As for those of us that are Christians, the Beatitudes are familiar. For those of us that have grown up in the Western world shaped by Christianity, The virtues, the sense of what living the good life looks like from these verses has shaped us. Brothers and sisters, these were not the values of many, even of the Jewish leaders, and definitely not the values and virtues of the Greeks and the Romans of that day. The king is presenting an alternative and an unexpected list of what a virtuous life worth living looks like. They were jarring to the original audience and they should be jarring to us. They are opposed to what is expected. I just want to cover how each of these contrasts with how the world tends to define the good life. First, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. The poor in spirit are the opposite of the cheerleader on the side of the football field full of vigor and cheer. These are people that are trodden down in life. They are needy in their spirit. They are discouraged. The world commends those who are full of confidence and self-assurance. He says, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. To use that other translation, Flourishing are those that mourn. Happy are those that mourn. It is well with the person that mourns. That is jarring. Now on one hand, it shouldn't be. Ecclesiastes 7.2 says, It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. And even so, more today, where funerals are chiefly described as celebrations of life, where we have gotten rid of mourning periods, where we don't wear black anymore, where we don't acknowledge pain or death anymore. This stands in contrast. We think that happiness, joy, excitement is the chief virtue, and if you are mourning, something is wrong. But Jesus says, blessed is the one who mourns because they have a picture of what's wrong in the world. They see evil, they see oppression, they mourn over their own sin and the sin of others. Blessed are the meek, or the humble. This is not describing a personality trait. This is not about introverts or the shy. This is a character trait. What someone chooses to be, 
very strong, a very powerful, a very authoritative person can be meek. Meekness is about not asserting self, not using one's strength for their self, but to use it on behalf of others and their good. He goes on to say, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Uh, we, there might pass over that says, yeah, that's, that, it's good to want righteousness. It's good to want justice. But we live in a society in which we rarely know what it is to hunger or thirst. This is to be desperate. To long to be at the edge of one's strength as they desire righteousness. On one hand, this word that is translated righteousness in other places in the New Testament is translated as justice. It is the idea of right applied to the individual and to the community. To hunger and thirst for righteousness is to see ourselves and see that we are not righteous. We don't keep God's law. And also it is to hunger and thirst for righteousness in the community. To see the oppressed no longer beaten down. To see the removal of evil and injustice. It's not just to acknowledge it's out there. It's not just to see it on TV and say, oh, that's too bad. It is to be consumed. It was hot last week, wasn't it? Hot in a way it's not normally here. And I imagine some of you were thirsty. What's it like when you're truly thirsty? All you can think about is when you can get that drink. We're to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. We might want to experience mercy, but to offer mercy is to acknowledge that someone has wronged us. And we are choosing to pay the price of showing mercy instead of taking vengeance. To be in a position to offer mercy is to be in the position of being affronted and sinned against in the first place. There is always the possibility that if we show mercy, it will be interpreted as weakness and others will use it against us. Blessed are the pure in heart. Pureness in heart is not just about purity in, in doing the right thing, but it reflects the biblical concept of having our externals match our internals. And we know that despite what people say, this was a virtue that people did not live out. Jesus confronts the Pharisees over and over again because they have all these external forms of obedience and conformity to God's laws, and yet their hearts were not there. As Isaiah 29, 13 said, as Isaiah spoke to the people, he said, This people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me. But we're so very often content with just looking the right way on the outside, of doing things for recognition. For the Greeks and the Romans, they had wealthy philanthropists and patrons who would give money to the poor, who would build buildings. Why? So their names could go on those buildings. So they could be recognized for what they gave. Blessed are the peacemakers. In order to 
be a peacemaker, you have to experience conflict. Just as the meek are not self-asserting, they're not interested in getting their own way, so the peacemaker's purpose is not to win, but to bind up what is broken. In a world where peace was seen as Roman dominance, Jesus calls us to make peace by mourning over sin and desiring justice. Lastly, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed are those when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evils against you falsely on my account. In an honor culture, in a shame culture, it not only hurt you to be persecuted and reviled, it hurt your family, it hurt your reputation, it hurt your business. And what's worse than being blamed for something that you did not do? Jesus says, happy is the one. It is well with the person that is suffering persecution for righteousness' sake, for the sake of my name. Brothers and sisters, let me just admit that as the king describes the virtuous life, the good life, the blessed life, these virtues don't make sense on their own. And we're going to get to how it is in the third point of the sermon, by looking at the second part of each of these sermons. But we need to wrestle with the jarring juxtaposition of it is well with the poor in spirit, it is well with those who mourn, it is well with the meek, as a call to examine the good life through the lens of what the king says instead of what we say or the world says. There's two things that means for us. On one hand, that may mean conviction. It may mean conviction where we need to recognize that we define the good life on our own terms. We have picked and chosen for ourselves how we want to live our lives according to what seems best for us or what the world says is best for us. These are not the totality of all of the virtues. We have the Old Testament. We have the book of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. And Jesus isn't getting rid of all of those but he is calling us to examine what we think makes for the good life. If we are to live under the rule of the king, if the good news of the gospel is that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, we need to ask ourselves, are we going to enjoy the kingdom as the king has decided? Or as those outside the kingdom? But also, if we are to understand that the good life is determined, is described by the king, it not only brings us conviction, it offers us relief. Part of growing up and becoming an adult is the difficulty of making decisions, of choosing between which is the worse of two bads, or what is the better of two goods that we don't have enough time and opportunity and money to pursue. How often have you asked yourself, is this the right decision? Is this even the right thing to value? And instead of having to define for ourselves what flourishing looks like, Jesus tells us. I just want to help us examine, what does our world say is the virtuous, happy life? It is the life of health, it is the life of wholeness, it is the life of wealthiness, and it is the life of celebrity. 
that means I am unhappy. That means I'm not flourishing. That means I'm a fool. Jesus says, you can mourn. You can be empty inside as you yearn for justice. You can expend yourselves for the peace of other people. You can say no to yourself for the flourishing of other people, and it is good. And you are okay. Jesus, as the king, describes for us the good life, but he doesn't just stop there in describing it. Jesus doesn't just tell us, but he shows us. When we read the Beatitudes, as Jesus pronounces the good and blessed life to his disciples, he is setting them up and he is setting us up to recognize Jesus as the one who leads an example. He's not just the philosopher sage who sits up on the top of the mountain somewhere in Nepal and you have to climb up, leave the life and go up and talk to this person who is all by themselves contemplating the meaning of life in order to get some piece of wisdom to then go back down into your life. No, what this section of scripture prepares us to do is prepares us to see Jesus not just saying this is wisdom, but saying, look at me as wisdom personified. Jesus is poor in spirit. Now this might be one of the harder of the Beatitudes to see at work in his life, but if being poor in spirit is to be needy, to not be self-assured. We see Jesus constantly depending on the Father in communion with him for the sake of his work. He constantly withdraws from the crowds, even the crowds that want to cheer him on, even the crowds that want to make him king, he withdraws from them so that he can commune with his heavenly Father in prayer because he's needy in spirit the encouragement and strength that comes from God. Jesus mourns. We see him lamenting over Jerusalem in Matthew chapter 23. He mourns over their history of killing the prophets, their unwillingness to gather to him for salvation. He mourns not only over personal grief, but he mourns for what happens to others. And in Luke chapter 11, one of the most profound passages of scripture for me is Jesus goes to Mary and Martha upon the death of Lazarus. He weeps. He weeps over death. He mourns over the death of a friend, even as he knows he is about to raise him from the dead. He mourns. Jesus is meek. In Isaiah 42, as we're prepared for the great servant of the Lord who is to come and serve the reestablishment of God's glorious kingdom for his people, it says this, Behold my spirit, servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. He conquers and crushes all of his enemies. Now it says this, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. He is not drawing attention to himself. He is not self-congratulatory. No, a bruised reed he will not break. And a faintly burning wick he will not quench. When Jesus is arrested, 
Peter grabs a sword and strikes one of the guards. And what does Jesus say? He says, Is it not within my power to pray to heaven and legions of angels would come to my rescue? Jesus humbles himself for the purpose of fulfilling the Father's will. He restrains his all-glorious power. One of the chief things that Jesus does early in his ministry is he resists the opportunity to be proud and arrogant and self-aggrandizing when the devil comes to him in the desert. Instead, he lays his agenda down to do the will of his Father. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle. Same word there. And lowly in heart, you will find rest for your souls. Jesus hungers and thirsts for righteousness. Not only is he personally righteous, but when he sees how the temple, where people are supposed to dwell together and come and pray before God, he is incensed and righteous anger causes him to cleanse the temple because he wants justice and righteousness, not only for God's people, but even for the nations that they would come and dwell in God's house of prayer. Blessed are the merciful. Jesus shows his mercy in healing the paralytic brought by his friends in Mark 2 and forgiving his sins. When the Canaanite woman comes to him in Matthew 15, when an outsider comes and begs for mercy, Jesus shows mercy. When Peter denies him three times, before he is crucified, Jesus comes and not only does he restore him, but he cooks him breakfast before he restores him. Blessed are the pure in heart. His opponents tried to catch him in lies, but his words and his actions were above reproach. Who he was was what he said and did, and there was no incongruity between them. Blessed are the peacemakers. Jesus said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Colossians tells us, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And if anyone was persecuted for righteousness' sake, it was Jesus betrayed by his friends, reviled, cursed, beaten, and nailed to a cross to be reproached by all and put to open shame. This he did for the sake of righteousness, not only to, because he was righteous, but so that we could experience righteousness in him, so that in aligning ourselves with him, we might have the reward of heaven. In a world of fakes and failures, Jesus practices what he preaches. He exemplifies the good life, and he invites us into it. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And it's not just a claim, it is something we can see. He offers a hope beyond the gurus or the self-help books, beyond the hypocritical politicians of our age. He shows us, therefore, what it looks like. When we come to the Gospels and we read about Jesus, he not only tells us how to live, but he shows it to us in himself. As the second Adam, he lives the life that Adam and all of us fail to live so that we can be his disciples and follow in his footsteps. What good is it to be a follower? What good is it to be a disciple if you are following someone that can't lead you where you need to go? 
Jesus shows us the example of flourishing. Which brings us now to the, to the good news of the passage. Because not only does Jesus tell us the way of happiness, not only does he demonstrate it to us, but he provides it for us. The good life is determined and described by the king. It is exemplified by the king, and it is provided by the king. The Beatitudes describe the way of flourishing because it describes those who look to God for their satisfaction. It is not the happiness of fleeting pleasure, but it is the rootedness of those whose hope is in the Lord. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You might be rejected by the powers of this world. They might beat you down and discourage you, but God will give you the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for God will be the one that comforts them, not this world. Blessed are the meek, for they will not conquer the world but they will receive it as a gift from God. Isn't meekness, isn't humility to lose out on the opportunity to take for ourselves? In, in saying no to that, God gives us the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. God will make us righteous. He will bring a righteous and just kingdom when he makes all things new. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God as he truly is. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Because they will be like God, who makes peace through his son, who dies on the cross for us. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. What the Beatitudes tell us is that the, happy, the way of happiness, the way of flourishing, is not in what you accomplish, it's not in what you have, it's not in your circumstances, but all of these reflect a Godward desire and a Godward expectation of God's provision. And Jesus is saying, not only do I know the way of happiness, not only can I show you the way of happiness, but if you are following me and receiving my good news, then you will experience happiness in me. Really, the Beatitudes are a wisdom literature. And a piece of good advice of common sense wisdom is not to work harder, but to work smarter. A friend was telling me about an opportunity he's had to go king salmon fishing in Alaska. When the salmon run, it is days worth of difficult work to bring in those gigantic salmon, some of them 30, 40, 60 pounds. Tremendous experience. But the thing he said is as much fun as it was to use the rod, he wishes he could get a permit for a fish wheel. A fish wheel is basically a water wheel, and the fish swim into baskets as it, as it spins, and it dumps the fish into a box. Instead of going out to get to the fish, the fish swim right up to you. Brothers and sisters, happy 
is the man who comes to the king because we don't go out and grab for ourselves happiness and the good life, but we wait for it to come to us in Christ. The way of wisdom is not trying to make this world into what it cannot be in our own strength, but is to recognize and wait upon the Lord for all good things, for all happiness, all flourishing comes from him. We know that we can have those things because the king fulfills them for us. He doesn't just promise them and say, if you wait long enough, it's possible. But because Jesus comes, we see that it is possible. As Jesus is raised from the dead, we know that the promises are true. He is the king who delivers his people by living the life that we cannot, so that we can have the reward that is rightly his. It's the 4th of July. It is a day of celebration of America's independence, of all that America has to offer, and it is much. Freedom and liberty and opportunity. Many things that other nations don't offer. We honor the sacrifices necessary to uphold that freedom. And it is right and good to celebrate what we have today. But as we celebrate, I want us to ask ourselves this question. Should we automatically say, blessed is the one who lives in America? I want to offer an alternative. Not because we can't say, blessed is the one who lives in America, but let us not restrict and restrain ourselves to this. I want to give you an update from Early Rain Covenant Church. This is their early update from June. Since the morning of June 4th, the fire door in the hallway outside the home of preacher Wu Wu Qing has been locked with chains. The fire door is connected to the elevator and stairs. Guards have been placed outside the door to prevent preacher Wu Qing and his wife from leaving the house. As of Tuesday, the 24-hour guards have still not been removed four days later. Two days ago, if brothers and sisters went to visit the family, the guards could still open the door and let them in. Today, they're being turned away. They were stopped outside the door and blocked from entering. The guards said that their superior had given a new order that no visitors should be allowed to enter. Later, another sister and her child were blocked from entering. Not even the child was allowed to enter. Wu Wu King called Chinese 911. The police came but did nothing. After Sister Weong, the wife of preacher Wu King, finished telling them about the Ten Commandments and the source of the law, they left. Sister Weong says to her brothers and sisters, Our door has been locked by our Abba Father and will be opened at the right time. We will pray for the authorities every day. May the Lord obtain their souls. Please continue to pray for Preacher Wu King's family. Pray that the Lord would allow Preacher Wu King's family to be nailed like nails to the city, to testify to the strength and power of the gospel by their gentleness and kindness, to testify to the holiness and righteousness of Christ. This couple is locked in their home without visitors, without recourse 
from the authorities, the people that are meant to rescue them. But brothers and sisters, I would contend that just as possible as it is for us to be blessed by the freedom that we have in our nation, our brothers and sisters in China are just as happy and blessed to be stuck in their houses, to be assaulted by the police because they can show the gentleness and kindness, the superiority of Christ. You might not feel particularly happy today. You might not feel particularly strong. You might not feel particularly blessed. But brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, you are flourishing. Brothers and sisters, if, if you are in Christ, you are living the life worth living because Jesus the King says so, because Jesus the King has shown us, and because Jesus the King gives us everything good. Amen? Let's pray. Blessed are those who are called by the name of Christ. Dear God, help us to value what you value, to shape our lives in a way that shows Christ that follows Christ because we are trusting Christ the King who came to deliver us from a life of sin and death. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.